dealing with like sexual immorality uh, and, and just like that life, like especially like, like that sin, especially like amongst men, it's a sin like we like hold on to and we never want to like let it out. I, I didn't want like people to look at me differently. Um, and I didn't want Shaddai to look at me differently. And so whenever it got to a point to where like I realized that, oh, I can, I can open up to her and not be judged. Like if I bring this up to her, like, oh, she got my back. Like it sucks like in the moment, but she has my back. In Shaddai's like she exemplifies Christ. It's because it's like, I can go to Christ and I know he's not going to judge me. He's not gonna turn his back away from me. He's not gonna look at me differently. Christ came to this world for one purpose, and that was to save all of us who did not deserve it. It really is dying to self and and being willing to, to give your life in whatever way um, it's being called. But it's always gonna be so much more rewarding. It's always gonna be worth it. It's always gonna be better. So I think it's just, walking by faith and taking that leap whenever the floor looks a little shaky. Because we're captivated by Jesus, we're, we're all, all in. in. Yeah. Well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Trust you are doing well. Beautiful day. Name is Brandon Zissi, lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. Our heartbeat is to be simply all about Jesus, and that's why we do all that we can to help other people meet, know, and follow him. Uh, we are in a vision series called All In. Our mission at Austin Oaks Church is to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And so the vision that we feel called to is to see by the year 2025 is to be a movement that sees Austin, Texas saturated with the gospel. And we want to do that by developing disciples so that the emerging generations will be captivated by Jesus. The first two weeks of the series, we talked about what does it look like to be all in. And then last week, as we started to talk through some of the things and obstacles and hills that God is calling us to do, we were asking the questions like, how are we actually going to do this? And we realized through Scripture that it's not by might or by strength, but it's going to be by His Spirit. And so this morning, what I want to talk to you, us about is how to be a church that is captivated by Jesus. Because we want the emerging generations to see Jesus. We don't want them just to see a nice-looking, polished church that does a bunch of good things. We want to see the emerging generation fall in love with Jesus. And so I'm going to humble myself and pray this morning. And I want to encourage you to pray with me this morning as well. Father, I come to you feeling um, very inadequate this morning talking about a message that is so overwhelming, so vast, so profound. Lord, I truly feel fear and trembling in trying to communicate it. And I already confessed to you that first service, I tried too hard. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak. Lord, I pray that your spirit would open up our eyes, soften our hearts, to hear about the love of Christ, that surpasses all knowledge. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in power because there's no other way that we can even grasp the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that you, through me, would speak and convict our lives of truth and righteousness. 
to see where maybe we have walked away ever so subtly, where maybe we've slipped into religion and abandoned relationship. Lord, I pray that we as a church here at Austin Oaks Church, that we would be a church as marked by our love for you. So Father, I ask that through the power of your spirit, you would have your way. God, where I fall short, would you be sufficient? I boast in my weakness now and say, Lord, would you be strong? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So my wife and I, Carissa, we've been married going on 17 years, and I truly still to this day couldn't be more thankful for her, her heart, her character, all that she is, and I still truly can't believe that I get to be her husband. I don't know what it took for her to be convinced that I was worth her time and effort. Um, And no, she's not paying me, and no, I'm not in a doghouse. I'm trying to get out, none of that, Um, but I might be after this, but we'll see. Um, I share this because in our relationship, she's the one who really is instrumental in helping me understand what it means to be compassionate and what it means to be loving, not just towards other people, but really to understand what it means to be intimate and loving towards her. You see, we are wired extremely different, okay? And that's what I call um, healthy tension. Let's just say it creates some robust conversations in the Ziski household. You see, I can easily I don't know if you can relate with this. I can easily get into task mode, okay? Like, I like to get things done. I'm an achiever. I'm an Enneagram 3 for those of you who are all part of that. Like, Like, I love to get things done. I love to see achievement and movement. And unfortunately, that carries over into how I see a relationship. I can easily get into like, here, honey, here's how I love you. I do this and I do that and I do this. And I check off the boxes. I like, I helped you here. I took the garbage out there. I did this. I asked you how your day was and all this type of things. I'm like, hey, I'm good. I can get into routine. We're busy. This is just how life is and all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, the danger of all of that is that I can begin to take the relationship for granted. I begin to presume upon it. And without realizing it, I like start to operate on cruise control. For instance, like I know my wife loves me and she should know that I love her. I know she cares for me, and she should know that I care for her. I know she has my back, and she should know that I have her back. After all, we have the rings. Is that not proof enough? Okay, so I get into that mode of thinking. Don't judge me. Now, because of those tendencies that I have, I can easily forget to be mindful of expressing my love to her and for her in regular little ways that are significant to her, but to me seem to be insignificant. That's so bad. I can't believe I just said that. Like, don't judge me. Like, truly asking how she's doing and truly listening to her. You know the difference. Intentionally spending time with her, being proactive and finding a babysitter and taking out her dates, buying her flowers still. I used to do that all the time when we were dating. All these little things. How do I show her love? And I can easily get into it. It's like, listen, she just knows we're good. All the things I do... She can, and I'm like, babe, you know all these stuff. And she, Lord bless my wife, because she knows what she got into. She knows how I'm wired. And through her patient endurance, she can tolerate it for some time. But after a while, she has to come and speak the truth and love to me, which I am so thankful that she does that. Because 
if I don't realize this, I will continue to operate this way. And next thing you know, it's like our love could start to grow a little bit cold. She knows all these things about me. And all of a sudden, she'll have this conversation. And she'll usually start it out by saying my name instead of honey. And when she says my name, it's like, okay, Brandon, I don't feel like we're connected. And when I hear those words, something inside of me immediately gets a little defensive. Something inside of me gets a little discouraged and a little bit sad because I know what's going to come next. I don't feel like we're close. I don't feel like you actually want to be with me. I feel like I'm just a box being checked off on your list. I feel like we're just partners doing life. This hurts. And I know that I struggle with this, even though I think that I'm really good relationally. I think I really love her well in my perspective. But I got to see it from the way she sees it. And this becomes very apparent in my first response. Like I said, I can easily become frustrated, defensive, discouraged, or sad. I get sad because the one whom I love and I cherish, who I married and pledged my life to, feels unloved by me. And that's my fault. She doesn't feel like she's a top priority in my life. That's my fault. I feel sad, but at the same time, I get frustrated and discouraged and even confused because I immediately go to, how can you think that? Aren't we connected? I mean, after all, Look at all the things that I've done for you. Look at these things. I, I've helped around the house. I've asked you how your day was this week. I took you on a date in the last three months. Like, come on, after all, we've got a ring. You know I love you. But then she has to help me see the deeper issue. Yes, honey, you've done well. You've done all those things, but you're missing the heart of it. We aren't connecting. We aren't relating. We're not sharing our hearts because we're just doing life. And at that moment, I have two decisions. I can either argue that and become defensive and push my point. No, you're just being a little over the top. I mean, you know I love you. I've done all these things. Just, just calm down. That's the doghouse. Or I can repent and see things the way she sees things and change my perspective and come from her angle and change the areas and realize and confess that, yes, you're right, I am not nurturing this relationship the way that I ought to. I can easily slip into transactional relationship. I can easily do that and forget the intimacy and forget the reason why we were married is because we love each other. We love the relationship. We love what came first. But because of the way I'm wired, I can easily get into all of the things that I do and all those things that I do ought to demonstrate that I love you, and they should. In fact, love starts to overflow into those things, but if I lose the heart of intimacy, then those things actually don't even connect. And I realize I do the very same thing with God. I can get so wrapped up in a transactional relationship with God. Here's the things that I do, God, I've done this, and I've done that, and this, and that, and I even, I'm, I'm, I'm good, like God, like I'm holy. I don't sin like the other people around me. And all of a sudden I can start to think that somehow that buys me favor, as if I can start to convince God, like, hey, look, my heart is for you, even though I'm not nurturing the relationship I have with you, I'm doing all these things. 
And I know that you've struggled with that as well. Some of you might even be there right now where your love for God has grown cold because it's all about checking boxes off. Maybe you just start to think like, hey, if I do this, God, then you will owe me B. Like God is somehow a transactional God. Somehow he's a quid pro quo. Like you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. That's how this works. No, that's religion. And that's not Christianity. And yes, all those things matter. And yes, those are things that we should be doing. And yes, we should be going to church and studying God's word and praying and giving and serving. And yes, we should live holy lives. Yes, yes, yes. But not at the cost of abandoning the love we had at first. That is so significant. It is so significant. You see, the God of the Bible... The one true and living God is not a transactional God. He's not a God that's simply looking for members to join the church roster for people who are going to adhere to the statement of faith, people who are going to serve for children. He's not looking for your sacrifices. He's not looking for your offerings. He's not looking for any of that. He's looking for your heart. And even though all of those things matter, those ought to be done of an overflow of him having our hearts. If God were a transactional God, this would be straight up. It would just be cold and lifeless religion, duty, burdensome, no intimacy, no love. We'd be singing about love and it just wouldn't connect. We wouldn't understand it. It would just be just tiresome. It wouldn't be transformational. It wouldn't inspire hope. It wouldn't do any of that. Now, praise God that he's the one that cares more about the heart than we do. Praise God that he's the one that comes and speaks the truth and love and says, yes, you've done all these things, but you're missing something. I mean, in fact, Jesus even warned us in the Gospels where people would come to me like, Master, haven't we done this and this and this? And Jesus would ultimately say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, what's so dangerous is that we can become convinced that all of the things that we do somehow equate to prove to God that we love him. But if God doesn't have our heart, then we're missing the whole thing. He wants our heart. The greatest thing we can be about, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And out of that comes the second, is to love other people. We obey God. We do all the things because we love him. But a lot of times we flip that around. And we do all those things and somehow thinking that if I did all these things, I would prove to God that I love him and somehow show God that he owes me his favor. He owes me now his love. The gospel is the greatest picture of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In fact, we can't even love. We only can love because he first loved us. And this is how it all started. This is how the church was born. Is born out of a response to the love of God. The church is birthed out of love. And from that comes obedience. And from that becomes influence. And from that comes salt and light. 
That's how Austin Oaks Church started, and that's how this church ought to continue. In fact, that's how every local church expression has started. In fact, that's how even the church in Ephesus started that we see in Scripture. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Revelation chapter 2. But before we get there, I want to paint a little bit of a picture of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was known as a church that loved God. They were known for their faith. And their faith is equated from like, right, it's believing in who God is, but it's also obedience that flows out of love. They were known for their love, known for their faith. And they were becoming passionate lovers of Jesus in an extremely antagonistic culture. A culture that was full of sexual immorality, full of mystic religion, full of even civic religion. Not that we know nothing about that here. They were facing intense persecution. And yet they still chose to love Jesus and love other people well. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. My iPad just did something weird. Technology. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, this church had a reputation for being captivated by Jesus. Paul, in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, we see some things that Paul was writing or like communicating to the elders because he was like, listen, I'm going to go on now and I'm probably never going to see you again because where I'm going is probably going to be the end of my life. And there was this sad moment and Paul wanted to stress to them what they should be focusing on while he leaves as elders over this church. In Acts 20 verse 26, Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful, pay careful attention to yourselves. So he's exhorting them and encouraging them, pay close attention to your relationship with God. Talking about all of those things that are wrapped up in the gospel. And not only for yourself, but also to the flock which God has made you an overseer. So I want you to pay attention to your own relationship with the Lord Jesus, but also as an elder, pay careful attention over the flock because you are the shepherd that he's caused you to oversee. Make sure that their hearts are in line with Jesus. And I love this little thing, like phrase here. He says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. A reminder how much God loves us. The church comes from the blood of Christ, the redemption of Jesus. It's out of his love. And he goes, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise people speaking twisted things, lies, and false doctrines. He's saying, like, there's going to be people on the outside that are going to come in that are false apostles, false teachers, and they're going to do everything in their power to move you away from the gospel. This is such a significant issue that Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, would say that anybody, if anybody would preach to you another gospel besides what I preach, to you, let it be an anathema. Let them be a curse. In other words, let them go to hell. That's how serious this is. He's exhorting them. It's like, listen, people are going to come in and they're going to say all sorts of things and you're going to be tempted to want to go with it. But don't let it happen. And worse yet, people from even within your own church 
within your own community will rise up and say things. Don't do it. Be alert, remembering for these three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish you, everyone, with tears. Verse 36 and 37. And when he said these things, this is such a beautiful picture. He knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him. This is the picture of their church in Ephesus. A church that loved Jesus well. Started off well. Revelation chapter 2. In chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, we get this snapshot of seven churches that have important positions of influence in the Greco-Roman world at that time. They're the seven lampstands, and Jesus has said, he's saying that he's walking amongst them, and he's seen these things, and there, and these seven churches, he exhorts them, he like gives them things like, hey, you're doing this well, and you're doing this well, and at the same time, he comes in and says, but you're also failing in these things, and these are important warnings and reminders for us today, even as a church, as to what matters to God. Look at this now in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, I know your toil, I know your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus highlights nine positive things that this church is doing extremely well in a hyper-pluralistic, hedonistic, civic-worshiping culture that's full of opposition, full of persecution. He's like, I know your works. You're doing great things. Keep it up. I know your patient endurance. I know your intolerance of evil. What things in the culture are calling good and right, you're not tolerating it. You're not compromising it. You're not watering it down. Your intolerance of evil. You've tested teachers and apostles. In other words, they're doing exactly what Paul told them to do in Acts chapter 20. Safeguard the flock. People are coming in and speaking things, and they're like, wait a second, we want to weigh this and test this. We want to pray and wait against Scripture. And they found them to be false, which means they knew their Scripture. They endured to the end. They were bearing up for his namesake. In other words, when they faced suffering and persecution, they understood it. It was for Jesus, and blessed are those who are persecuted. And they haven't grown weary in these tasks. He's complimenting them. I mean, friends, for all intents and purposes, looking on the outside, looking in, this is a church you want to be part of. I mean, this church is strong in works and deeds, and they're strong theologically. They knew their stuff. They were true to God's word, and they were faithful in doing the works that God called them to do. And that's a good thing, which is what one would expect to see from a healthy and good and vibrant church. In fact, these are things that you would do and expect as an overflow of their love for Jesus. But a question has to be asked. Is it possible, is it possible to keep doing these things and lose the heart of it all? Is it possible to slowly drift away from relationship and move into a transaction? Yeah. Unfortunately, yes. In fact, that's how a lot of marriages end. 
they start in love. They start connecting. They start nurturing, devoted to each other, passionate, pursuing, all of the things that you're supposed to do. But somewhere, somehow, somewhere down the line, there's a slow drift, a slow eroding due to a lack of nurturing their love and remembering what brought them together in the first place. Even though they still might be doing things on the outside, their hearts could be worlds apart. And what's so dangerous about it is that it looks good, it looks right, but inside it's all wrong. This happens with Jesus all the time. And we have to be diligent to make sure that we're in his love, to remain in his love, to abide in his love. This is a big deal. It's not a small little thing. Like somehow, sometimes I like to argue with my wife. Honey, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're making little things seem so large. Watch what Jesus says now in verse 4. But I have this against you. Words I never want to hear from Jesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned, you've walked away. You've drifted away from the devotion, from the love, the passion, the relationship that you had at first. I mean, does that not on the surface just seem a little harsh? I mean, after all, Jesus, they were a good church. They were doing good things. They were holding true to the word. They weren't tolerating evil. Like, what more do you want, Jesus? Oh, their heart. He wants their heart. He wants their relationship. He more than any transaction. It's like what we hear a lot of times in the Old Testament. Your sacrifices and offerings, I don't desire. I want mercy. I want the relationship. I want the heart because out of the heart overflows all these things out of a pure and right motive. If you take relationship away from Christianity, friends, you have nothing but a religion. You have a religion that looks like every other religion out there that is based on a transaction. I do this, God, you do that. There's no transformation in that. There's no relationship in that. There's no intimacy in that. There's no hope in that. And anywhere where you have religion, like that, you ultimately have a false gospel that props itself up with works, with legalism. And wherever you have legalism, you have relational distance. There's no intimacy. There's only indifference towards God. And consequently, then, there will be indifference towards others whom God loves very much. I have this against you. I mean, as I was thinking about this, I was like, hit by the, the word, the phrase in verse 1 where it says that he's walking amongst his churches. And as he's doing that, he sees and he knows all that Austin Oaks Church is doing. He sees and knows what is driving us, what's motivating us, what's compelling us. He sees and knows what we're captivated with. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, that's sobering. 
Like when he sees us as a church, does he see us as the church who's captivated by Jesus, that is compelled by the love of Christ, that is controlled by the love of Christ? Or are we more concerned with the things that we do? This is always tricky talk because we don't want to downplay the things that we do. The things that we do are extremely important. They are a byproduct of our love. Yeah, but Brandon, can't we abuse his grace? I would question your love. This is so dangerous, my friends. This is such a big deal to abandon the love that we first had. Because at the heart of this is really a spiritual illness. Because if love isn't the driving, compelling force in our lives, friends, guess what? Something else is. And if it's not Jesus, call it what it is, an idol. We will always pursue what we think is most satisfying in our life. And if it's not Jesus, it's something else. And whatever that something else is taking priority, which put Jesus somewhere where he shouldn't be. We will always satisfy ourselves on what we are convinced is most satisfying. Always. And for a church, this is why when we say we want the emerging generations to be captivated with Jesus, because if the love of Christ isn't present, if we are not compelled by the love of Christ, listen, if we don't reflect the love of Jesus Christ, we are no longer really functioning as the church that Jesus designed it to be. Lack of love is a deadly spiritual illness. Making secondary things the primary deal. If we abandon the love of God, we are abandoning a major and most significant aspect of Christianity. What is controlling you? What is compelling you? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us, captivates us. It's my focus, it's my devotion, it's everything. Everything I do is flowing from that. This is flowing out of the whole concept of being chained to the chariot where he leads us in his triumphal procession. Because we have concluded this, and what you're going to see is the gospel that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He loves us. He loved me. He died for me. He died for all that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us. It's what captivates us our theological core as a church flows from the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. I love it. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood. That is our theological core. The world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another, implying that we love him first because out of that flows a love for others. 
So we have to ask ourselves the question, have we abandoned the love we had at first? That word abandoned is so incredibly strong. I don't know what images come to your mind when you hear that word abandoned. My immediate picture in my mind is like a mom or dad dropping a kid off in some random spot and walking away. Like that, that's what comes to my mind. Like, and I started to think, it's like, what would I feel or how would I respond if my wife said that to me? Honey, you've abandoned our love. I'd be like, hold up. No, I'm still married. I still for you. I still love you. I do all these things. But yet from her perspective, it could feel like that just from a subtle shift away from a relationship, a subtle um, indifference towards nurturing the love that we have and moving into a transaction. So maybe the word abandon isn't like so drastic like, yep, today I'm choosing to walk away from the love of Christ. It's more of a slow fade. It's a slow erosion. It's multiple subtle decisions that we make. Maybe it's the things in your life that didn't have priority or you didn't see great value in, but the older you got or things happened in your life, they started to get at you and your heart has now been given over to them. For instance, maybe it's money. Maybe it's just like, I gotta have money or maybe you're spending way too much money you don't have and it becomes debt and all these types of things and all the lust and covetousness that's wrapped up into that. Jesus even teaches multiple times in Scripture that money is the number one competitor for our hearts. Maybe it's job, hobbies, sports, relationships. I don't know. Certain things that have pulled away your attention, something that you see of greater value and worth. Maybe at one point in your relationship with Jesus, you were in the Word multiple times. You were hungry to be in God's Word, and you love being in God's Word, and somehow life got busy, and it slowly turned into, instead of like, I'm in God's Word multiple times a day, it turns into maybe once a month, and then maybe once a month turns into once every six months, to it turns into maybe, I hear it when I go to church, on occasions. You've gotten yourself so busy that you don't even have time to pray. And you give him your leftovers. There's no margin. There's no this. There's no time to meditate. There's no time to worship on your own. You no longer feel the weight of sin and the conviction that it comes. You've lost the joy of your salvation and the wonder and mystery of it all that God would send his son to die for you. Oh, yeah, it's old hat. When you start to feel that, you've got to ask yourself the question, did I slowly drift away? from nurturing the relationship that I have. Do you know how God, how good our God is? That even in the moment of conviction, when he comes and speaks the truth in love to us, he also gives us a solution. Because the reality is, we have all done this. We've all turned and said, God, look at all the things that I do. Look what I believe. Aren't, we're, we're good. What more do you want? And we turn it into a transaction. And God's like, I don't, I, I want your heart. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to earn my favor. I, I love you. I sent my son to die for you. I've done it all for you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want your heart. And here he tells the church in verse 5 the solution. Remember Therefore, from where you have fallen, remember, what was your life like before Jesus? 
Maybe you've been a Christian as long as you remember, but remember the moment when you realized that it wasn't about a religion, it was about a relationship. Remember what it's like to experience the hope and freedom in Christ. Remember what it was like to pursue him and feel like your just spirit's alive and you just feel like he's right there and he's speaking to you and you read God's word, you're like, this is amazing. Remember how he's been faithful to you. Remember how he's been good to you, how he's forgiven you. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. When we celebrate communion, that's a time of remembrance that we come together and remember the gospel that Jesus came, his body was broken, his blood was shed to save you, to redeem you, to restore you, to reconcile you with the Father. Remember. Why are you together? Why did you become a Christian? Remember that and repent. Repent. Repent from the things that have been drawing you away from the love of Christ. For some of you, that's sin. Some of you, it might just be weights that you carry. Maybe you're just so busy. I would probably consider all of that sin. What are the things that are drawing your attention away? The things that you think are more valuable than nurturing the relationship, abiding in Jesus, remaining in his love? Repent from those things. So here's what I want to do. You have a sheet of paper. Either you're sitting on it or it's next to you. And it just says these two words, remember and repent. I want you to spend some time as the worship team sings. And I want you to reflect on this. I want to encourage you to write it down. Actually writing it out instead of just thinking about it is actually a little bit more intentional. And I want to encourage you to write it out. Remember why you said yes to Jesus. Remember what he has done. Remember where you were. Even reflect on what your life would be like apart from Jesus. Then as you do that, I want you to repent. Write down the things that you need to stop doing, the way you see things. Maybe you struggle with believing how much God loves you. Repent from that and believe that he loves you because he does. Maybe it's just you give him leftovers. Don't overthink it. And after some time, I'm going to come back up. I'm going to talk through another piece and we'll conclude our time together. So Father, I ask that in this moment, Lord, you would shepherd your children. Lord, I pray for one that you would encourage them. Encourage them where they're at. But Lord, at the same time, I pray that this is a beautiful time of remembrance, remembering our first love, remembering why we're in relationship with you. And Lord, even remembering that we can't even be in this relationship with you apart from you. So God, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would you give us an undivided heart to fear you and to love you? Would you empower us through your spirit to do this? I know there's this tension between you doing it and our responsibility. So Lord, our responsibility in this moment is to remember and to repent. And Lord, would you meet us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name.
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That, re- that informs us how serious 
Jesus is about relationship. I remember my hopelessness. I remember years of going to church. Years of thinking that if I just went to church, if I was just baptized and confirmed and did all the things and I honored my parents and I did this and that, it would be good. I remember not being able to snap out of sin, not being able to shake off addictions. And I remember trying to muster up the strength to read the Bible more and to pray more just so I can get it right. I remember feeling hopeless, depressed. I remember feeling suicidal. And I remember Jesus coming to save me. I remember Jesus giving me freedom. I remember joy, tears of joy. I remember dancing. I don't dance. Singing. I remember eagerly wanting to go to church to worship with my brothers and sisters, hungry for the word just to hear what God had to say. I was eager to confess my sin and to remove the things that held me back. I remember those things. I remember still having to repent of certain things. But what do we do now? Do the works you did at first. When you remember, remember what you were doing. Do the works you did at first. One word comes to my mind, devotion, undivided devotion, passionately pursuing Jesus, disciplined, eager, hungry. So church, his spirit will do it. We respond by doing our end. We remember, we repent. We got to do the things we did at first. When we first started falling in love with Jesus, do those things, keep doing those things, never get tired of doing those things. So as we conclude, I want us to sing this song as a declaration of saying, God, I want to be captivated by you. I want to be devoted to you. I cry out by faith, even if I don't feel it, that my heart will sing no other name besides Jesus. Jesus, you alone are worthy. You alone are due all of my affection. You're greater than anything in my life. I believe that. Help me with my unbelief. And sometimes we just need to declare that and sing it by faith. To me, there's nothing more encouraging in my own relationship than being reminded that what God wants is my heart. He doesn't want perfection. Praise God. Because I already blew that today. He wants my heart. 1 Peter 1.13, a verse that just popped in my mind. Set your hope fully on the grace that will come when you meet Jesus. Set your hope fully on that grace. Lord, we, we ask for your spirit. Captivate our hearts, Lord. We open ourselves up to you and say, move, spirit of God. Show us the things that we need to repent of. 
stir inside of us even the memories. Help us to be mindful of what we did at first. Lord, thank you that it's oftentimes faith like a child that is most pleasing to you. So Lord, we declare as a church, by faith, we sing our heart, we'll sing no other name besides Jesus. And God, may we be a church that is marked by love for you, captivated by you. We want to see the emerging generations be captivated by Jesus. So Lord, would you move? Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name.